On today's special midweek episode, we'll talk analytics, health, some baseball stories, and more. Former Major League pitcher and current director of pitching of the San Francisco Giants, Brian Bannister, joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and we've got a great show for you tonight. We have a former major leaguer who pitched five major league years with both the Mets and the Kansas City Royals. His best year in 2007, he had a 3.87 ERA accumulating a 2.3 war in that time. He also has coached for both the Boston Red Sox and currently with the San Francisco Giants. Please welcome to the show, Brian Bannister. How are you, Brian? Doing well. Great to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Our pleasure for having you. Uh, and, you know, just, just before we start, um, what, what would you say is, has been the highlight of your career so far? The obvious answer is, is winning the World Series in 2018. Uh, that was the culmination of a lot of work and failure as both a player and a coach. Uh, and to just do that in a team environment and stand up on the stage at Dodger Stadium and hold that trophy up with your friends and uh, front office mates, it, it was pretty incredible. And so that that was definitely the highlight. Yeah. What, what was your highlight of your playing career as well? Uh, you know, my favorite story is in my favorite game ever, my favorite highlight, uh, I lost. And it was pitching at Fenway Park. Uh, if you get into the eighth inning as a visiting pitcher, uh, whether you like the song or not, Sweet Caroline comes on as you're warming up for the inning. And it's a pretty special thing to still be out there against the Red Sox at Fenway. The music's playing. The fans are going nuts. Uh, I gave up a double off the wall to Dustin Pedroia and lost. Uh, but I went eight shutout up to that point, and, and that was my favorite game I ever pitched in. So that is still the little boy inside of me. I loved pitching in that game and just being out there uh, until the, the end of the game. And so that was my personal highlight, even though I lost. Wow, wow, wow. And uh, since Ruben and I are Met fans, do you have a favorite uh, Mets moment? Uh, you know, that team in 2006 that I was on was it was incredible. We should have won the World Series. Yeah. To be around uh, Pedro and Glavin, uh, to be around so many all-stars, guys that had tremendous careers. Uh, we won the division, uh, the Andy Chavez catch that year. Uh, even though we lost, uh, it, it was such a tremendous team. And, uh, you know, my, my catch partner was Chad Bradford, the submariner from Moneyball fame. And uh, there, there were a lot of guys that took me under the wing that year. And uh, I, I just enjoyed the team and, and everything about the city that year. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that. Uh, I I cannot remember Shea Stadium shaking more than it did during Game 6 of the NLCS. I was at that game. It was absolutely incredible to see. Uh, I was in, th- I think, the Loge level, and just the whole stadium shook above, and you, you thought it was going to crash down. It was an incredible, incredible scene. Yeah, I was, I, I'm such a big fan of all those guys, and uh, it was just a privilege to be on that team that year. Yeah, no doubt. All right, well, and it's time for the Injury Guru's Trivia of the Week. Trivia of the 
Well, you mentioned a little bit about your playing career, playing with the Mets, playing with the Royals. I want to see if you know or you can remember these people. Name the two Hall of Famers that you played with. First question. Uh, oof. Uh, Glavin and Pedro on the 06 team. Yeah, um, you were 100% correct. Those are the two Hall of Famers that you played with. But now this is a little bit of a tougher question. Can you name four, uh, five players who are still in the MLB? They're still playing, and you played with them. I'll give you a hint. Four of them are pitchers. Yeah, Granky's still out there. Uh, That's one. Casimir I played with. We, we had him this past year. He was my teammate uh, in Port St. Lucie with the Mets. Um, oof. It, Yusmero Petit, Joaquin Soria uh, was Soria. still around <laughs> this past yes. year. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Anybody that's still playing has had a tremendous career. <laughs> well, not not 100% true, but Gerard Dyson, he's still playing. Jesse Chavez, he's still playing. You Je- played with him in Kansas City. Jesse's and, done very uh, well for himself. And, of course, I have to save this for last, but Oliver Perez. Oh, wow. Oliver yep. Perez, he's still playing. He's still pitching. Um, based on based on this, um, you've been you had a long career. Uh, well, based based on on major and baseball, you, you're still considered five years, still considered a long career. But you played in college also. Talk about the impact that you had on your college team. Yeah, I I had a couple scholarship offers to other small schools, and I'm a big photography uh, cinema nut. And so I I went to SC with the ill intentions of also being in the film school, and had to walk on at SC. I got an art scholarship. Um, so I wasn't one of the main guys, uh, but I still think th- the reason I got seen uh, was by my sophomore year, I got to be the closer on the team uh, behind Mark, Mark Fryer, who was the number two overall pick. So the scouts were all there to see Mark. And I was kind of the mop-up guy that would come in after him. Uh, so I, I got seen a little bit that year and played on some good teams in a good program. Uh, but just privileged to go to the College World Series my first two years. And uh, my senior year, got to be one of the main starters on the team and, and get drafted by the Mets. So that, that, was a, that was a real privilege. So this is the Fangraphs podcast, so I definitely have to talk about analytics. And, uh, you know, in your current role, you're the Giants director of pitching, and you do things like predictive analytics, machine learning, pitch design, 3D motion capture, biochemical modeling, visual cognitive deception. Oh, my goodness. That's uh, quite a lot of stuff. And clearly you're a big proponent of analytics. Can you explain what some of these terms are, some of these uh, things that you use uh, to help uh, others in terms of analytics and what your impact is now on your current Giants team? I wish I was much better at coding than I am and building models. Uh, My way of approaching the game uh, from an analytical perspective is to – kind of build mental models on what I know is happening, even though I can't quite explain it. I'm not the guy that can actually quantify it uh, with the code, with the math, uh, but I, I'm always hunting around the ideas. And so a lot of my original ideas that I kind of came up with uh, a decade plus ago have held true until now, even though at the time I couldn't quantify it either because the technology wasn't out at the time. You know, we started with Quest Tech in 2002, PitchFX 2007, TrackMan 2012, uh, and Hawkeye now. 
but when I was kind of uh, trying to figure out some of these things, just sitting in my garage at home, uh, you know, this was even pre trackman So we didn't have spin rate. We didn't have extension. Uh, I kind of had to sketch out a lot of these concepts uh, and rough them out in my head. Uh, but some of them have, have held up for the last decade on what I came up with back then. And it's been fun to work with people much more talented than me to actually quantify them over the years. Uh, but, but a lot of the competitive advantages that I developed a long time ago uh, have still served me well um, throughout all these years. And, and now that we have Hawkeye, we can quantify a lot more things than we used to. Uh, but for a while, we just didn't have the technology to fully quantify exactly what was happening. Uh, but they still re represented competitive advantages uh, because we had mental models kind of built around a lot of these concepts. And that speaks to to your resourcefulness and as well as your your intuition. I mean, a lot of things you were saying, you know, you you've surmised and then you're now able to quantify it. And kudos to you for you know knowing the right the right direction to take everything. Um, you know, question for you in terms of bang for the buck. Because uh, obviously there's a lot of tools at your disposal. What would you say is the most important or the most effective tool that you've used? Or maybe what analytics stat family or, or something like that uh, would have given you the best bang for the buck in terms of usefulness uh, over the, your career here? I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, you, you don't just run one big model on all pitchers, that there's different ways and there's different styles for pitchers to get batters out. And, you know, whether you want to call it buckets, et cetera, uh, I'm just a big believer in studying the uniqueness of pitchers. Um, if, if 10 men walk into a, a suit store, you know, the same suit off the rack doesn't fit all 10. And I just love studying the greats and the outliers in the game and figuring out what makes them so unique. Uh, and then and then breaking it down further from there. Um, so a lot of it is just uh, putting in the time to study why some pitchers are so much better than all the other ones, and then reverse engineering that into something that I can then share uh, with younger pitchers or pitchers that we acquire. Uh, and and that it's the process because people learn uh, in different ways. Some are visual learners, some are uh, audio learners, kinesthetic learners. Uh, and a lot of people learn better by, by hearing things through a story or an analogy rather than hearing the raw data itself. So I attribute a lot of, um, you know, just the overall success over the years to just the ability to present the analytics in a format that that specific player can digest and tailor it specifically for what he needs to do to get major league hitters out who are the best in the world. Um, so however you want to define that process, I, I'm a big believer in the process over just the power of the raw numbers themselves, even though I incorporate that into everything I do. Have you found that certain organizations are either ahead of the analytics or behind in the analytics or just on par? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I, I've had the privilege of working with people that have been part of the inner circle of, of pitching at the major league level. Uh, Houston, when Sig was over there, uh, Mike Fast. Uh, you see what uh, Cleveland's done over the years, Tampa, 
there, there's certain organizations that um, are were ahead of everybody else. And I was fortunate to get exposure to people that had learned from really talented people in those organizations uh, and kind of compiled all that information along with my own self-discoveries. So I'm definitely a a compilation of a lot of talented people and concepts and continue to make uh, new discoveries all the time. But I attribute a lot of my success to being willing to learn from other organizations and study what they're doing, the types of pitchers they're acquiring, how they're developing them, and then studying the great pitchers in those organizations and what makes them so great. Got a mailbag question from Michael, and he asks, Hey, Brian, can you give some insight into what teams might be looking at that fans don't have publicly available? There's a lot of bright people working on things like VAA, Seam Shifted Wake, and other ERA estimators. So, uh, Brian, is there anything else that uh, you can tell us about uh, what uh, maybe what's coming in terms of the next step of analytics or uh, maybe what we can see on the horizon? I think some of the most valuable things have always been um, the things that aren't explicitly told through the data, um, the things that have to be inferred, uh, the things that are derivatives of the data. Um, I remember sketching out my first VAA model back in 2011. And, um, you know, it's something that I've refined for the last decade. Um, you know, I always believed in seam shifted wake just for the simple fact that when you throw a knuckleball with no spin on it, it still moves like crazy. So I knew something was impacting the baseball uh, when there's no Magnus forces on the baseball. And so I always knew it existed. And you watch Greg Maddox throw, you know, front door hip shot, two seamers. And you're like, how did the ball move like that? Uh, I just knew there were other things happening. And as I got more exposure to uh, pitchers that, that could leverage those concepts, like Rick Porcello in 2016 winning the Cy Young and seeing a lot of it up close, um, working with Stephen Wright, who was an all-star uh, knuckleballer, uh, working with the submarine pitchers, I, I've just slowly added uh, skills to my, my skill set. Uh, by working with these pitchers and kind of learning and, and absorbing uh, what they do so special. Uh, and I, th- I think that's the fun part is, um, you know, you might not find it on Baseball Savant or you might not see it on Brooks Baseball, but th- there's just things that you can kind of model in your head. You know they're happening, even though there's no way to prove it. Uh, but then that's, that's where it gets fun to dive in with pitchers and try and figure it out. Yeah. I was just listening to um, Alex Chamberlain, one of our other writers over at Fangraphs, and he was talking about, you know, a lot of it has to do with um, the attack angle and uh, whether you're throwing high or low fastballs. And he pointed to uh, Paul Seawald, who has the straightest fastball in baseball currently, and he has one of the lower release points, and the fastball seems to almost move slightly upward. And Seawald struck out over 100 batters in relief work this year. Uh, I mean, have you seen things like this happen? You know, if you look back, I I study baseball history constantly. Um, You just look back. Any any great photo of, like, Tom Seaver throwing, uh, Nolan Ryan throwing, um, you know, there's just things those guys did that are different. I, I think one of the reasons pitchers are good is that they present something unusual and different to hitters. Uh, whether their body is unique, um, you know, there's some attributes about them that are outlier. Uh, 
um, that it's been that way throughout baseball history. And, and that's what I so, find so fascinating, you know, Koufax's high arm slot, um, Mariano's, you know, rising cut fastball. It's just things that some pitchers do that nobody else can do. Uh, so I'm always searching for attributes that represent something different from the crowd, just because it's hard for hitters to predict the path of the baseball when they have no way to practice that type of pitch and they've, they've never seen it before. It's just hard to get under into the batter's box under pressure in a game and make solid contact with a pitch they've never seen before. Now, we know of the Astros scandal that they were using technology to steal signs, relaying, them, relaying the information in real time to win games. But there isn't anything wrong in studying and preparing for your opponent in advance. And, of course, figuring out sequences during the game the old-fashioned way or watching video. How much of analytics do you use to help your, your teammates or, or your, uh, the players on your team play to their strengths and also figure out how to exploit the other team's weaknesses? I, I think a big part of preparing the modern-day pitcher uh, to go out and compete is just letting them get comfortable with what their own personal analytics are, uh, knowing their body, because ultimately you can't coach them on every pitch. They have to make the adjustments themselves. Uh, but when they're so fluent in their own numbers, uh, their own analytical concepts that lead to uh, their success on the field, and you build up that culture, uh, you know, Boston, we started off having to educate all the pitchers on all their numbers. But then by the time we won the World Series in 2018, uh, all the pitchers knew their numbers. They knew what they needed to do out there. and you know, they would ask me questions. And once you get the culture to that point where the pitchers are craving the information uh, as fast as you can give it to them, you know you've succeeded and they become their own best coaches out on the field. And being an orthopedist, I also want to know how much of the analytics are devoted to keeping players healthy, particularly on the mound, you know, with pitch counts and stuff like that. I think teams have studied that for a long, long time. Uh, you know, I think there's there's certain things that predispose a pitcher to injury. And some pitchers with the way they pitch and the way their body is put together are, are more predisposed to injury. They, they just inherently come with a higher injury risk. Um, and that kind of happens at the acquisition stage in the draft, international uh, pro trades. Uh, so to me, you're assessing a lot of that risk ahead of time uh, instead of just dealing with it after the fact. Um, they're, they're putting the forces on their joints, on their elbows, on their shoulders, uh, you know, at certain levels. And different styles of pitching are harder on different types of joints. And so they, when, you, when you have a certain pitcher, you know he's just predisposed to uh, getting fatigued in a certain area of his body. And, you know, like a submarine pitcher is more likely to have hip or lower back injuries just because they're always bending over when they throw on every pitch. And so if you can design programs uh, to preventively uh, maintain their bodies, but also just recognize that it, it comes with the territory when you acquire that type of pitcher, uh, I think everybody involved can help support that pitcher to stay as healthy as possible. So, um, you know, getting ahead of ourselves to 2022 and hoping that the lockout gets solved uh, really quickly, but you might be in a situation where there's going to be a very shortened spring training. Um, how do you intend to prepare 
your pitchers uh, in the short amount of time uh, for the next season? How do how do you how are you going to prevent them from getting injured because of a compressed spring training and so on and so forth? Yeah, we almost had a dress rehearsal uh, with the 2020 season in that we had a very quick ramp up time. Uh, this organization, and I give a ton of credit to all the coaches and staff, they stay in touch with all the players. Obviously, right now, you can't talk to the 40-man guys uh, or free agents, but um, you know the, the minor leaguers, the guys that, that you can talk to, they are always checking in on them, and uh, the staff has really done, done an amazing job of making sure they're physically prepared. And prior to the lockout, uh, you, you kind of had to be in touch with everybody and say, we don't know when we're going to get to talk to you again, but, you know, here's your plan. Uh, you know, make sure you stay true to it, and we'll see you on the other side. Right, right, right. Well, um, you know, anybody who's followed your Twitter knows that uh, you tell a fantastic story, and your story Twitter threads are fantastic. And just wanted you to, to, to tell us one of them. Um, one of the ones that stuck with me is your most important bullpen session ever, where, uh, you know, you're there with uh, um, Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan. Could you, could you tell us about that, that incident and how that really impacted you? Yeah, you know, I was, in, I was in Hawaii over Christmas, and with the lockout, I was sitting by the pool, and there's no baseball news. And I just jotted down like 20 of my favorite stories. Uh, and I started, I started writing them out. And so that's, that was the genesis of the Twitter threads. Um, so if you've seen them recently, I kind of wanted to just give baseball fans something to read that are great memories from my career and my childhood uh, that kind of filled the void, the vacuum of this lockout right now. But that, that particular story occurred in 1992. My dad was a pitcher for the Texas Rangers. It was the last year of his career. And, uh, training was different back then. Once you pitched, the next day you went out on a five-mile run, and that's what starting pitchers did back then. And so I would r jump on my little bike and follow my dad around. Uh, but I was always at the stadium. Kids were allowed in the clubhouse. There was gum. There was sunflower seeds. Uh, I just loved being at the field. And one day I walked out, and, um, you know, a group of men were at the right field bullpen. And I was curious because they were throwing a football. And I went and sat down and, and started watching. And, you know, two completely different styles of pitchers. Uh, the coach was offering really insightful advice. And I got to watch a couple of bullpens that day uh, as an 11-year-old. And it ended up being Kevin Brown and Nolan Ryan and Tom House, the pitching coach. And I learned so much that day. And two totally different styles of pitchers. Uh, but it just had a huge impact on me. Uh, for the rest of my career, and uh, it's one of the reasons I embrace uniqueness in, in pitching styles is because Kevin Brown was the polar opposite of Nolan Ryan, uh, but they both had tremendous careers, and so I I don't believe that pitchers all have the same have have the same mechanics. Uh, I really love the uniqueness that a lot of pitchers bring to the table. Uh, I have a, one more mailbag question, and apologize if you can't answer it because of the lockout, but. Uh... The uh, question from Michael is, what about Alex Cobb stood out when looking to sign him? And he thinks he can be a real bargain this year in fantasy baseball due to his advanced stats last year. You know, I, I won't get into the behind the scenes of that, but, um, you know, he's done a lot of work with, with driveline the last couple of years. He had a tremendous year in, in Anaheim last year. 
when you see a pitcher have a really good process and put in a lot of really good work in the off season and is really invested in becoming a better pitcher and educating himself on uh, what he needs to do to be prepared every day and, and gets to know his analytics at a very high level. Um, you know, you're, you're impressed. And so uh, just in my initial conversation with him, he's put in a ton of work. And so uh, I'm just excited when uh, the lockout's over to, uh, to work with him. Yep, absolutely. And uh, ATC projections currently projects him for 136 innings, 123 strikeouts, 395 ERA, and a 131 whip with nine wins this year. So, Hoping that happens for you guys. Um, you know, thanks so much again, Brian, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, what, what, what have you got going on the next couple of weeks until hopefully hopefully uh, we'll start uh, the season going on? Yeah, the minor leaguers and the non-roster guys are already uh, hard at work, like I'm sure they are for teams around baseball. Uh, I know everybody's excited to work with the players again. And, um, you know, I'm just a huge fan of the game of baseball. And I want uh, every generation of baseball fans to – uh, be able to experience games again. So I'm looking forward to that. Likewise. All right. Again, that's Brian Bannister. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm Ariel Cohen here with Ruvain Guy, and we'll see you next time on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.